get your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 7, somebody. Luke chapter 7, the gospel of Luke. That's a thing they teach us in Bible college, by the way, to clap when we want to make a point. Luke chapter 7. Now, some of y'all grew up in some places where that meant something else. Let me tell you what I'm about to, you know, y'all know that kind of. <laughs> anyway, so, um, <laughs> but Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And let me tell you where, where, I'm, where I'm at on today's message. Uh, there's something I've been wanting to talk about in my heart with you guys. And I want to talk about worship today. And I think the message is really going to be helpful, but I think it's going to be inspiring and encouraging, but I'll just kind of cards on the table, tell you I want to talk about worship because it's been something on my heart. In Luke chapter seven, we have Jesus. This is where he is hanging out at, at Simon the Pharisee's house and a woman comes in. We're not given her name. We're told she's a sinful woman. So we're giving, we're giving her reputation, <laughs> but not her, we're giving her label. Isn't it great? Isn't it amazing? Not great. Isn't it amazing how Satan will fight to label you by every wrong thing you've done, yes. right? Because if he can label you, he can limit you. And he wants you to live your life through the lens of all the mistakes you've made or the mistake you've made. Maybe for me, it's all the mistakes I've made. I understand some of you are more holy and it's the mistake you made, but whatever it is, right? Um, but isn't it great that Jesus, like, like every time you see a label in the Bible that encounter Jesus, they go away without the label. Isn't that amazing? Like there, there was the blind man, but he ain't blind no more. There was the lame man, but he's not lame no more. There was the sinful woman, but she's not a sinful woman anymore. Are you with me? Like, I love the grace of Jesus, how he removes the labels, because he's going to take the limits off of you. But this is, this is where the sinful woman um, comes to anoint Jesus and break the alabaster box. And let, let me just say, a lot of people confuse this with, um, if, you, if you look in, in the gospel at, at uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14 and John 12, then you see Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus the week that he's going to be crucified. And most people make this the same thing. In fact, in the Bible, there's Mary of Magdala, that would be Mary Magdalene, and there's Mary of Bethany, that's Lazarus' sister, Martha and Mary and, and Lazarus, right? Um, and, and sometimes they all get, and, and I understand because there's things the text gives us and there's things it doesn't. Luke is not written chronologically as a gospel. And so a lot of people argue that this is the same thing, but I don't think it is. And I'll tell you why. Number one, because even though Luke is not chronological, Luke chapter seven takes place over a year before the crucifixion. And we know that because of other markers in the gospel. Also it, in Luke chapter seven, it talks about Simon, the Pharisee. And in, in the other instance that we see in Matthew and Mark and John, it talks about um, Simon, the leper and a leper could not be a Pharisee. It wouldn't be like, cause they're considered unclean, right? So, so it can't be the same Simon is my point. Um, so the timeline doesn't work. It can't be the same time. You know, it's also in different places, Capernaum versus Bethany. Um, so there's just, there's too many differences. So having said that, we know the, and, and then also Mary, as in Mary, Martha and Lazarus, they were an influential, they were actually wealthy. They were a wealthy, influential family. So Mary, most people believe Luke chapter seven is talking about Mary and Magdalene or Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, because she was a prostitute that Jesus had cast demons out of. And it's because it's titled a sinful woman. Like, um, I know we all sin, but in their culture, if you got the title of sinful, is because you had a reputation. 
You understand? So a prostitute would have been a sinful woman. Does that make sense? So where it was, whether it was Mary Magdalene or, or another person, a sinful woman, and Mary of Bethany, that was not her. Although, yes, she was a sinner and had to be saved by the grace of Jesus, they were a wealthy, influential family, and she was not a prostitute, okay? So all those things are different, but just because I know you were sitting around this week, probably even got up this morning, having your coffee before 11 a.m., and you were talking with your friends, and you're like, I hope he really explains the difference between this anointing and that anointing, because I'm just so confused, and I would say to you, Merry Christmas. All right, so, but now that we're on the same page, so this is Luke chapter 7, so a year plus before Jesus crucified. It's probably Mary of Magdala, um, but it's called a sinful woman. And Jesus hanging out at a Pharisee's house, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume, and standing behind him at his feet. So, so he, would have been, he would have been like reclining maybe on his side with his feet pulled back. This would have been kind of the way they hung out, right? So his feet are kind of behind him. So she comes from, from behind him. I would get down and demonstrate it. But you know that song, I get knocked down, I get up again? Well, in, at my age, if I get knocked down, it's questionable. <laughs> right? Like we were, like, yeah, I got to take my time. Like we were skiing and, and I... Uh, fell down because I was being stupid, and I did what I told the kids not to do. Apparently, I, I, I learned there's still testosterone in my body um, because I was doing things that I sh shouldn't have been doing. You know, this is how all guys end up in the ER. And, um, and so anyways, snowboard, I cut, didn't work, fell, land on my head, my shoulder. It was bad. My little sweet daughter skis over to me. Dad, are you okay? And my response is, I have no idea. Like, I don't know, like the system's rebooting and I'm going to have to wait till it comes back online to see if my hard drive's cracked or my RAM is busted. <laughs> so I'm not going to get down and show you how they did this, but you probably get the picture. Feet behind, she comes up and uh, she starts anointing his feet and, and standing behind him weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, uh, with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with, with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, they said to themselves, now, this is what I always love about Pharisees and Jesus. They always say, if this man were a prophet, he would. And then he always answers their thoughts, and they never figure it out. <laughs> so he said, this is what he said. If this man were a prophet, he would know what, what kind of woman, what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Oh, great point. And I don't have time to teach it, but so good. See, the reason this upset the Pharisee so much and the reason he became so indignant and really, you know, was really being judgmental towards Jesus is because under the law, a sinner, an unclean person like this, if they touched a righteous person or a clean person, the clean person was made unclean. So that's the law. If, if the clean is touched by the unclean, that's why you couldn't be around lepers or anything like that. If the clean is touched by the unclean, the clean becomes unclean. The picture here that we see, because this woman is saved and transformed, is grace. Because under grace, when the unclean touches the clean, the unclean is made clean. Which is all of us. Like, we were all unclean, and we touched Jesus, and he made us clean, right? And so it's, it's a crazy picture. It's so good. So... Um, but he said, even though this woman's a sinner, and Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you because you're a crazy, pr prideful, arrogant 
Pharisee teacher person. And he said, well, say it, teacher. And he said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. The other owed, uh, uh, the other owed 50. Neither could pay. So both debts were canceled. Which of them would love more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you've rightly judged. Then turning to the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water. These would have been customary things you would do for your guests. You gave me no water, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. I call this message metamorphic moments. Metamorphic moments. Um, Let's pray together. God, we have gathered in your presence. And even online, God, we're still gathered in your presence. And we want to hear you. So just eliminate all distractions. Help us to focus on you. But most importantly, don't let us miss you in this moment. Help us to hear what your Holy Spirit says to us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. When I was thinking about this, because most of the time, I guess categorically most of the time when this passage is taught, well, many times I should say, you've probably heard this passage taught in conjunction with worship, which is how I want to talk about it today. Um, and when I was thinking about worship, and I've said this, you've heard me say this, that, that I think what the church owes the world is an encounter with God. I really think that's, I think that's what we're called to give people. That's why when we love, when we serve, we're opening the opportunity, the door for an encounter with God. We owe the world an encounter with God. It's really hard to give the world an encounter with God if we've not had an encounter with God. Uh, when we haven't had an encounter with God, in fact, I think we talked about this last week or week before, when I haven't had an encounter with God, I can only give what I have. So I can give them a religion. I, I, can, I can give them a doctrine, maybe, and give them a belief, but I can't give them an encounter with God because I just simply can't take people where I haven't been. I can't give what I don't have. And so I think as the church, we need to give the world an encounter with God. I think the problem is the church is giving the world an encounter with church, and it's just not as impressive. Mark Twain once said the reason people don't go to church is because they've been. How many know when people need an encounter with God and they get an encounter with church, it just leaves them wanting. And that's why I think as a church, that's why we pray like Tuesdays, Mondays and Thursdays at noon, Saturdays at nine. I still want 100 people praying. We're still not there, but I'm so grateful for the ones of you that have committed to that because we've seen such an increase in prayer. We've also seen an increase in breakthrough and other things because we've seen an increase in prayer. So I love you and thank you, but there's always room for more on the bus. But the thing is, we're, we're crying out like, God, we need an encounter with you. Like We don't need a good church. Good church is fine, but we need, we need the glory of God. And when I think about worship and I think about the power of it, worship is one of those places where you encounter God. And when we encounter God, we're always changed. You can't encounter God and stay the same. There's no place in the Bible where anyone had an encounter with God, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, and stayed the same. Amen. It's just not a possibility. So when I thought about this woman, here she comes. The Bible says she's a sinful woman. <laughs> like, she had a past, y'all. 
And she comes to Jesus, but in this moment, she is transformed. And she leaves not a sinful woman. She leaves a daughter of the Most High. And, and to me, that's a metamorphosis. It's a transformation. It's being transformed in, in kind, in character, um, and even in appearance. And when I thought about it, a lot of times when we talk about metamorphosis, a lot of us think about a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And I thought, you know, kind of as a picture of worship, like worship is where it, they are metamorphic moments where I encounter God and I'm changed. And I even thought about how the, the, the larva gets in the cocoon and then it has the struggle to break out of the cocoon. Y'all probably remember this from science class in whatever grade we were in when we learned about this elementary school or something. And I thought sometimes that's like worship too, because sometimes worship is a struggle. Yes. That's the sacrifice of praise. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so I just thought, that if I was talking about worship in this context, what I see from this woman, I see this moment that she has changed, and it all centers around this moment of worship. And to me, that's the greatest picture of where we encounter God and we're changed and transformed. Like worship, to me, every worship experience should be a metamorphic moment. Yes. Yeah. I should not be able to behold Jesus and be in his presence and leave the same. And so I just want to talk about worship for a minute in, in, in kind of in that context, if you will. So three things that I want you to write down, unless you're not taking notes. So if you're not taking notes, uh, get something and write these down. Um, but if you're taking notes, just write them down. Three things. Number one is this. Worship expresses. Worship expresses. Like when, when you look at, at, at this, the activity, if you will, of this woman... It's one thing, the activity she's doing it. It's another thing to realize this activity is driven. It is motivated by something. Like you just, you don't show up at a stranger's house with a very costly, you know, box, it says, but container of perfume and sneak up behind somebody and anoint them and cry and dry their feet and wash their feet and you just don't think, you know, that'd be fun today. <laughs> like this, this is an expression of something. Yes. One of the greatest definitions I've heard of worship is this. Worship is love expressed. Yes. Love expressed. And that's what we see. Jesus said, this woman who's been forgiven much loves much. And so she is expressing love, and that's what it looks like. I'm not saying it's what it has to look like for you, but I'm just saying all of this activity, this expression is driven by love. Worship is love expressed. And you think about it, it has to be love and it has to be expressed. You remove either one, it's no longer worship. Because if you express something, but it's not motivated by love, that's not worship. And if you love, but you don't express it, that's not worship. Worship is when I express love. And when really what worship comes from, worship is a response to the grace and the goodness of Jesus. John said, we love him because he first loved us. She had an encounter with Jesus, and this was the response of that encounter. This was the reciprocation of what she had experienced or felt. That she had something, she had love, and she has 
expressing. And really, that's, that's, what, that's what worship is. Let's break that down. Love, love expressed. Let's talk about love. Um, we said this, love is a, re- a response to the goodness and the love and the grace of Jesus. And John said, we love him because he first loved us. So, so love is, is, is the emotion, is, is our response to him. Like God, we have an elder one time, well, he's still an elder, but he said this one time and he said it several times. He's like, I don't think emotion is some side effect, negative side effect of God's creation. Like God made us and part of making us is he gave us emotion. Emotions are good unless you let them drive the boat. (laughs) That's a good way to run ashore, right? (laughs) We don't let emotions drive, but they are good because emotions tell us a lot about what's going on with us. We experience good emotions when people love us or they encourage us or they help us or, or we experience good things. Wouldn't it be sad if we couldn't experience joy, you know, or what we might call happiness? Wouldn't it be glad? Wouldn't it be sad if we never felt loved or cared for or seen or valued or, you know, so, so we have emotions and part of that emotion is, man, we feel something when I realize God loved me. God died for me. God didn't want to live without me. Right? God forgave me. God healed me, delivered me, cleansed me, redeemed me. Like, like God loved me. Like, it's okay. Like, that should have some emotion with it. Now, man, I know you're struggling because you're like, I'm a man. Like, man, I know sometimes we struggle to figure out what our emotions are. That's why something happens and you tell your wife, you're like, I'm fine. And she comes out in the garage and you've cut the car in half. <laughs> and she's like, honey, is something wrong? You're like, nope, good. Because <laughs> you try to figure it out, right? I understand. But, but guys, let's do Men, men, you have emotions. And if you were taught that they're wrong or they're not manly, let me remind you, we serve the man of all men, Jesus, the man of all men, Jesus Christ. And he had emotion. Like he, I mean, he wept with Martha and Mary, right? I mean, he, you look through there, like he went in the temple and tore crap up. He threw tables. He went MMA. Right? So I'm just saying, don't buy into the fact that we're men and we shouldn't have emotion. And don't buy into the fact that there's something wrong with a woman because she has emotion. Like we need to be, because listen, without emotion, you don't really experience God. And without emotion, you don't really worship God. And so while we don't want emotion to be in charge of everything, because somebody's going to get hurt. Emotions are good. And worship is emotional. Like we were standing here today and they were singing the goodness of God and I get little chill bumps, you know, and I'm like, God, you have been so good to your boy. Like you have been so good to me. Like, and I, and I'll think about things. I'm like, oh wow, God, you are so good. Like I'm here today. I'm following Jesus. So worship is, is love expressed. The interesting thing is um, that love is a choice. Like you need to understand love is a choice. Even though, even though we're talking about emotion, and I want to talk about emotion. If you're here with blue suede, you know, because our culture is kind of with blue suede. We're hooked on a feeling. <laughs> I am believing. There you go. I knew it. I love it when y'all sing along with me. 
Like this is the closest I'm ever going to get to the worship team. And when y'all sing along, I feel so excited. And so I know we're all hooked on a feeling like blue suede and that's fine. But sometimes you don't feel it. Like if you've ever been in love with a human, sometimes you don't feel it. Sometimes they're on your last nerve. Somebody over here, that's the first amen they've ever given in the history of their Christian faith right there. This lady's like, oh, preach it, preacher. But here's how I know love is a choice, because you're commanded to love. Like you see it in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. But then Jesus actually says it in Matthew 22. They, they ask him, teacher, which is the greatest commandments, Matthew 22, 36. And he said, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your uh, soul and with all your mind. And, and they, he said, this is the greatest commandment. Like it's, it's a command. I love God. Like, yes, it's a response, but sometimes I love God. I just choose. Like sometimes when we come to worship. Sometimes I've, I've had a good week and God's been good and I got a raise or I got a new car or, or God did something miraculous or powerful or wonderful. And I come in and I'm ready to worship. And sometimes I come in, it's been hell. Right? And so it's then, then I still love God because yes. he said, this is the greatest commandment, love God. And then he said, this is another commandment, second greatest commandment, love people. You know what? Loving people is not a choice. It's, it's not an option. It's a choice. Like it's not an emotion. You don't have to feel lovey to love them. Some people I understand are easier to love than other people. But the command is love them all, right? Even love your enemies. But the reason it can be, the reason it's a choice is it's a command. And God can't command us to do something we can't choose to do or we can't do. And so you need to understand, like, love is a choice. Yes, it'd be great if we were always hooked on the feeling and, and high and believing. And it would be, be, be great if we always just felt the warm fuzzies. But when we come to expressing our love to God, you need to understand sometimes it's a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes it's been a hard week, but I'm going to come in and I'm going to love on him anyway. In fact, this is what's so cool about God. He will never tell you to do something he won't empower you to do. Because in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, watch this. So we're commanded to love, but we're also given the ability to love. Watch this, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That means, <laughs> there's a lot to say there, but that means to make it sensitive. We're not going to get in. Somebody's like, dear God, where is he going? No, we're not going to get into circumcision. Y'all can talk about that over lunch. <laughs> if you do, tell me you're from First Baptist, if they overhear you. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, but he circumcised your heart, which is to make it sensitive to him, to make it loving toward him. So here's what he said. The Lord your God is going to make your heart sensitive and loving toward him and the heart of your offspring. By the way, parents, it's a great scripture to pray over kids that their hearts will be sensitive to God. So that, look at this, he's going to circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and you may live. Isn't that great? God says, hey, yeah, you love me. Like that's a command and it's a choice that we make. And sometimes, sometimes it is that reflection, if you will, or reciprocation of, of, of an experience or emotion or something. And then sometimes it's just like, no, I love God. 
I love him. Today is my choice to love God. Like I may not feel it, but it's my choice. Now let me tell you two things about love. Number one, love leaks. Like if, if you've been in a relationship, if you've been around people in relationships, you know, you know there's a difference between newlyweds and people who aren't newlyweds. We'll just put it there. <laughs> and the truth of it is, like I, I never get, I was in a restaurant and a, a counselor I was talking to told me this one time, but I was in a restaurant and I was eating dinner and I kept noticing this couple of years, a nice restaurant. It's not a normal, just like it wasn't like Wendy's, y'all. And um, what even Applebee's? I know we're all fancy like Applebee's, but um, <laughs> fancy like Applebee's on a date night. Yeah. Anyways, we're not going to get into that song. But anyways, <laughs> but it means a nice restaurant. And is this, this couple that I presume was married. And then I, I don't think they ever talked. And, and I just thought that's, that's sad to me. Like it was sad because such a great place and everything was, it was just nice. And, and I just thought, I went back to the words of the counselor. He said, you know, I talked and it's like, why? He said, because they've ever said everything they want to say. And they never decided to learn new things, say new things, deal with old things. Wow. And love is leaked. And sometimes in our relationship with God, love leaks because of discouragement or disappointment or disillusionment. Love leaks because we've done this a while and we get into just going through the motions. Like I, I was talking with uh, Mark and Elena, and they, uh, Elena's leading one, Mark's with her, but they lead a, a marriage group. And they were talking about how they had challenged all the married couples in their group to do something like nice for their spouse that week. And so I was over at their house and Elena had bought Mark his favorite cookies, which are also my favorite cookies. And so I was so glad Elena was loving Mark well. <laughs> because in a way, it loved me well. Are you with me? But I thought, how good is that to say, hey, get out of the rut. Find something out about your spouse that you don't know or your relationship, your kids, whatever. Do something for them that's out of the norm because love leaks. Deal with the disappointments. Deal with the hurt feelings. Deal with the strife. Like, God doesn't disappoint us, but so many times in our perspective, the enemy will convince us God let us down. Yes. And we will build up resistance to God in our own hearts the same way people do in relationships. And any unresolved issue is going to be an attack on love. And so we need to understand love leaks. And when stuff happens, the enemy is trying to help us interpret that and, and make us see the love. I mean, essentially, he's trying to drain the love out of our hearts. So we need to understand love leaks, but we also need to stand, understand love grows. How does love grow? Sometimes it grows through adversity by handling the right thing, getting help, going deeper in our relationship, learning more about them, forgiving them, trusting them, loving them, serving them. Love grows deep. And so just like with God, you can grow your love deep. It leaks, but you can grow. So worship is love. Express. Let's talk about the expression part, because what I love about our church is that we have a church that's very diverse. So we have all types of people. We have people that you've been a Christian longer than I've been alive and thank God for you. Right. And we have people that this is kind of your first, your first rodeo at church, you know, and you're still like, I don't know what to do with all this. And that's cool too. And then inside this, we have people that came from all different genres of church. 
So we have Lutherans and Methodists and Episcopalians and some Catholics. And then, I mean, we're in the Bible Belt, so you know we have Baptists. Yeah. See, and we have one on the front row, which is proof we're in revival. When a Baptist hits the front row, brother, God is moving. Right? And and then another, and then and then something else we have, we have, like, because we're in Bible Belt, we have Pentecostals. See, they, you, you, see you see, found Woohoo! Woohoo! Come on! See, they already know. They have a virtual cornucopia of Holy Ghost Tourette's they can throw out at any moment. <laughs> and I can say that because that's where I grew up, y'all. So don't think, oh, he's being mean to them. No, 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 no. I grew up there. I've seen stuff that if you ain't been there, you don't understand. You can't scare me in church. I have seen it. <laughs> Are you with me? But because of this, we have a lot of people with different styles of worship that, that were raised in different styles of worship. And sometimes it's like, I don't know. How do we worship? How are we supposed to worship? So when we're talking about love, how do we express love? I just want to go back to the Bible and give you some ways the Bible talks about expressing love or worship. So let me give you this. I'm just going to run through this fast. Number one, we love God by coming to his sanctuary. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Because Psalm 151 says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Nothing against my online people. I love you. But there is something loving about getting up, getting ready, and going to God's house. To say, God, you're better than a cup of coffee in my bed today. Right? And I'm not trying to hate on you if that's what you've done. I'm just trying to teach you. I'm just trying to say that that's part of that sacrifice of saying, God, you are worthy. What, it, what are you worthy of? Well, today you're worthy of me getting up, getting ready, getting the 12 kids ready, getting my husband ready and getting to church. Right? So one person said, what was the hardest kid you ever raised? And this lady said, my mother-in-law's. But there's something like it's expressing love to God, right? Expressing love. We, we go to the sanctuary. Um, here's another thing. On the instruments, Psalm 50, verse 3, praise the Lord with the trumpet sound, praise him with the lute, praise him with the harp. It's, it's worship. It's okay to use instruments. Now, in our church, we leave this to highly skilled professionals. Please don't bring your banjo, Bubba, next week and be like, I'm going to join in for a chorus. No, no, no. No tambourine. That's right. We don't want a tambourine. And I know if you're Pentecostal, you've got one with the face of Jesus on one side and, and gold streamers on the other, but you worship the Lord in gladness at the house, okay? <laughs> Praise the Lord. But, but we do. It's, that's why we use musical instruments, because it's a way to love on Jesus. Um, with singing, Psalm 100. Now, this is how my singing sounds. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. For some of us, that's all we got. Right? We're, we're not going to sing like the people up here, and that's okay. You, here's the thing about God. I don't think he's tone deaf, but off pitch doesn't seem to bother him at all. Right? Like, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. What about clapping and shouts? Psalm 47.1. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. I just want you to know, most of these things happen today, and I just want you to know they're okay. 
Like if you're like, I'm not sure what to think about that. That's why I'm helping you. Like this is just what the Bible says about expressing our love to Jesus. Now this one's going to make people nervous, but it's in the Bible. Dancing. I found the Pentecostal, y'all. I found the Pentecostal. <laughs> Psalm 149.3, let us praise his name with the dance. Amen. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. Now, here's all I want to say. Like, we believe in freedom to express your love to God in worship. Let me explain where freedom ends. Freedom ends when it encroaches upon someone else's ability to worship. Right? So your freedom always ends when it limits someone else's freedom which would be a great lesson for our nation today. So, but, but I'm just saying, so dance. And then bowing, Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our master. Like these are all, and there are more, but I just want to give you kind of a cross section of things we see in the Bible. That is, this is how we can express our love to God. Now, one more thing I want to say before I, I go to the next point is this. When, when you look at uh, so many times this, this text in, in Luke chapter 7, but also like John 12, where Mary Bethany is anointing Jesus, so many times these, these texts are used as a picture of worship, right? Like I'm using it today, right? It's a picture of worship. You know what's interesting about both of those is, number one, there's no music, actually. Number two, no words on screen. It's not actually a song. It's just the expression of love from a heart. But you know what else is really crazy about it? Is in both these texts, in this moment, when you talk about worship and how it looks in this moment, worship was actually ministering to Jesus. It wasn't Jesus ministering to her. That happened in the end. She was changed. But when you look at Mary of Bethany and the, the disciple Judas, Judas gets indignant because he's like, we could have sold this ointment and, and give it to the poor. And we know that that wasn't what Judas was worried about at all. He was worried about stealing the money, right? But Jesus said, this will never be taken away from her because she has prepared me for my burial. In other words, she was ministering to Jesus. M my point is this, that the purest form of worship is ministering to God. It's where we come without agenda. We come not wanting. We come not asking. And we minister to Him. And since worship is all about Him and not about us, what if it's not about worshiping Him the way I want to or the way I feel comfortable worshiping Him? What if it's about worshiping Him the way He wants to be worshiped? Because it's actually about him and we want to minister to him. And what if it's not the worship team's responsibility to move us? Because some of y'all, when it comes to worship, y'all be the tree planted by the water. Y'all not going to be moved. They could set their hair on fire and you'd be standing there. But I'm just saying it's not their responsibility to move us like we should come in and say, I'm going to minister to God today. I'm going to express my love today. So worship expresses. Here's the second thing. Worship exposes. This Pharisee, we read it, but he said this, if Jesus knew, essentially, if this man knew the type of woman that was touching him, 
He wouldn't be having it, basically. Um, what is that? Where does that come from? Because essentially he's saying, I'm better than Jesus and I'm better than this woman. If you had to put a word on that, that word would be pride. What's crazy is, think about this picture. You have Jesus in the flesh in a room. You have a woman who is involved in one of the greatest worship experiences that's ever happened. And you have a Pharisee who is oblivious to the fact there's even a need for worship. Like the dynamics of this room are intense, y'all. And here's the truth of it is, because pride can't worship. Pride will always affect worship. And, and here's something, I'm going to tell you something. We all deal with pride. And if you're sitting here thinking, I don't deal with pride, that's a prideful statement. <laughs> I never forget, we, we had a situation, a church discipline situation. Someone's out of line. They were causing problems, whatever. An elder and I sat down with them, and the elder just said, I can tell you the problem here is pride. And I never forget, we got the greatest statement in church history. And I love it because this man looked at us and said, listen, I have always prided myself on my humility. (laughs) I'm like, well, there it is right there. We nailed it. Got it. All right. (laughs) But listen, y'all, pride, and here's the thing, pride's dangerous because pride is, is like undetectable. Pride hides. And I'll tell you where pride really hides in good church folks. Pride really hides in religious people. I can tell you about pride. Pride is like bad breath. You're usually the last person to know you have it. And and when we're looking at this text right here, this is what we see. We see a man who is so prideful, he can't even acknowledge the Son of God. And not only that, he's become indignant at the worship Like, if you want to find religious pride, religious pride will always judge the worship of others. It will. Like, religious pride will walk in a room where worship's going on and say, well, I don't think they, I think that's just flesh. That's what they used to say where I grew up. That's that's not the Lord. I, I tell you that we shouldn't have that musical instrument and they shouldn't be doing that thing. And that person right there, I don't like this song. Why do we even sing this song? And I'll tell you, the ugliest form of pride that exists is self-righteousness, especially to God. Because to tell God after he sent his son and he died on a cross that you're good enough without him, I can't imagine anything more grotesque. Because ultimately, self-righteousness, you know what self-righteousness is? Just believing you're good enough. And we live in a world, I'm going to tell you something, may shock you, we live in a world of self-righteous people. Because everyone who hasn't come to faith in God, you know why? They think they're good enough without him. That is self-righteousness. They're religious and don't even know it. That's true. That is very interesting. And then we have those that come to God and we struggle because we get good. And we're not doing all the bad stuff. And we start to rely on our own righteousness. And here's how you know you're a church person that's self-righteous. If you've ever been upset with God because he didn't bless you a certain way because of how good you are. 
life group leader. My washing machine shouldn't have died. We laugh, but many of us have gotten upset with God because he didn't do something right. And whether we said it or not, in our mind, we're thinking, but I've served you faithfully. I've done good for you. Let me remind you, the man who wrote all things work together for good to those who love God died in a prison. It's like bad medicine. Let me show you this in Luke 18. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get, Have you ever gone to God and explained all the things you do for him? Let me tell you where that comes from. I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he said, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So let's look at it real quick because I don't have a lot of time. So there's a Pharisee. The Pharisees, just so you know, they didn't start bad. When the, when the Greek culture moved in, right, to, to, to the Jews, to those who worshiped God, um, they started mixing this Hellenistic culture with the worshiper, worship of Yahweh. And so there was this group that rose up and said, no, we have to separate and keep the worship of Yahweh pure. And, and so we're, we're not going to participate in this you know, mythology and idolatry and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so we're, we're going to, and, and so we're going to keep the law. And then in order to keep the law, they started making laws about keeping the laws because ultimately they wanted to protect the purity of worshiping God. So ultimately they started out good. The problem was the more laws they made and the better they got at keeping their own laws, the better they thought about themselves. And that's where this arrogance and this pride set in. And that's why they became the one group that couldn't even find Jesus when he was standing in front of them. And the people that would argue with Jesus and the people that Jesus had the harshest words for, because why? They had so convinced themselves of their own goodness, they could not humble themselves and receive grace. Because you understand grace is wonderful, but it takes humility to receive it because you have to finally give up on you being enough. Because grace says only he is enough. And it's a gift. Righteousness is a gift. But as long as you want to be righteous, you can't receive righteousness. And so, so here's this, this Pharisee. Um, and then there's this tax collector. So the way Rome would do it, they would colonize. So they didn't like exile people to, to Rome. They'd take over an area and set up a Roman colony and put Roman culture there. And they would allow the people to live and prosper and work. But then they would put tax collectors in the colony. And the tax collector would tax the people but they were allowed to tax them as much as they wanted. So Rome's like, well, here's our cut. You tax them whatever you want. You can keep the rest. So essentially, tax collectors were like legal extortionists. Moving along. So, so they were considered thieves, essentially. Robbers, just legal ones. But, but that's how they were thought. So these two people come into to worship. And, and the Bible, so here's what the Bible said. Here's this self-righteous man. And one version said, he prayed thus to himself. Wow. 
meaning he was praying about himself to himself, for himself. So I think about his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Like he's, he's not praying to God. He's praying about him. Like here's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness worships to make you feel better. It prays about you to make you feel better. It reminds, like you get, in, you get around God and you use God as an excuse to make you feel better. Like, well, God, I'm doing better and God, I'm doing great. And right. And here's what, here's what this guy's doing. He's like, he's like talking to himself. He's not worshiping God. See, here's the truth. Here, pride will do two things when it comes to worship. Pride will either A, pride cannot worship, or B, it will worship so everyone knows I'm a good worshiper. Like, that is pride and worship. That's what it looks like. Either, either I'm just not going to worship because I'm good, or or. I'm going to worship in a way that everybody knows how good I am. And that's what you see in his, like he's in there, he's at church, so everybody knows how good he is. Like self-righteousness creeps up in our hearts. And then you have this with the tax collector, because he won't even look, his, look to heaven. He's beating his chest, which is a sign of grieving. And he said, God, be merciful to me. Now the text says a sinner, the Greek says the sinner. So here's what I mean by that. He's not lumping himself in a category like, God, I'm a sinner like everybody's a sinner. No, he's saying, I'm the only sinner in the world. Like all my sin is my sin. I'm not going to make myself feel better by saying everybody else sins too. But he's saying, no, I'm a sinner. Like, forgive me, Be, be merciful to me. Jesus said, everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. I've found worship is a great place to humble yourself. Like, I don't know, you probably hadn't noticed, it's not that big a deal, I don't do it for you, but there are times in worship that I kneel during worship. And there's two reasons I do that. One is for God and one is for me. I kneel because I want to kneel before the Lord, my maker, and say, God, you are God, and I'm not. In doing that, I'm also saying he is God, and I am not. I had someone tell me one time, they said, a person who stays knelt before the Lord cannot fall from that position. And to me, sometimes I'm like, because listen, we all deal with pride. Again, if you're sitting here thinking you don't deal with pride, you're prideful. Merry Christmas. But, but we all deal with it. And worship's a great place to come in and lay it down and say, God, it's you and not me. It's you and not me. I'm kneeling before you. Um, it's kind of like Isaiah. I see the Lord. And he said, when I see the Lord, that's worship. When we see the Lord, he said, I'm ruined. I am undone. I'm a man that is not clean. You can't see the Lord and think you're right and think you're good. And when we come into worship and we kneel and we see the Lord, we realize he is God and I am not. And that's good for everybody. Here's the third thing. Worship transforms. I said this in the beginning, but worship, we, we, we need an encounter with God so we can give the world an encounter with God. Worship is where we can encounter God. It is an oppor- you have to understand every worship experience is an opportunity to encounter God. Every, let me say it again. Every worship experience is an opportunity 
to encounter God. Isn't it interesting when, God, when Jesus talking to the woman of the well, he said that God is seeking worshipers, essentially what he said. God is seeking worshipers. And it's like, that's interesting. Why is God seeking worshipers? But then if God is seeking worshipers, it means God created worshipers. And since there's no exclusivity in the text, it means God is seeking worshipers and we can all be worshipers. Better yet, we were all designed to be worshipers because that's what he's seeking. Are you following my, my thought, yeah. right? Are you with me? So why, if God could design us as anything, why did God design us as worshipers? Because it is the best that he, it's the best design he could give us. And here's why. In love, God designed us to be worshipers. And the reason is, think about that. In love, he designed us to be worshipers. Not because he needs worship, but because we need to become like him. And you always become like what you behold. You become like what you worship. Remember, 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God in a mirror are changed into that same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. We behold and we become. You become like what you worship. Let me give you a, another scripture. This one's kind of crazy. But it says this, Psalm 115.4. Their idols are silver and gold. So it's talking about idols, obviously. They, they're, they're the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. They have feet, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Look at verse 8, though. So he's talking about idols, and it says, Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. This is, what, this is what God just said. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Today in our world, everybody's worshiping. Y'all yes. chose to worship God today, but everybody's worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? And I can tell you how to figure out what you worship. It's what do you trust in? Because did you see that? They become like, like, like what they worship. So is everyone who trusts in them. Like if you want to know who, what someone's really worshiping, where do they run when there's a problem? And the reason we come into worship is because God's best for us is to be transformed or conformed to the image of his son. And we, whatever we behold, we become. So it is so important that we fix our gaze and we fix our focus and we look to him because whatever we fix our focus on, whatever we look to, whatever we worship, if you will, that's what's going to influence us and that's what's going to affect us. And that's what, that's gonna, what you worship determines who you become. Worship money, you become greedy. Worship success, they, they, whatever you worship. Jesus said, if your light is good, if your eye is good, right? In other words, what you look at is good. It fills your body with light. In other words, like what you're looking at determines. Like this, is, I shouldn't have to say it, but we have to in our culture. Like pornography should be never an accepted, excusable thing is this is okay. Because you can't look at that and be filled with light. You, you can't have a great sex life in a marriage viewing pornography. It's not going to happen. 
And, and it's just the way God designed us. He wants us to be worshipers. And when we worship, we behold him. And when we behold him, we become like him. Like this, this is the power of worship. It, it's, it's an encounter with the one we behold. Let me give you this and, and we'll call it good for today. This woman comes in. And she's got an alabaster box of perfume, essentially. Now, we believe, most theologians believe she was, well, everybody knows she's a sinful woman. Most people believe because of that title, she was a prostitute. So if you're a prostitute, what is perfume used for? It's, it's, it's the tool of the trade. Can we leave it PG? And I want you to think about this. This woman who had been in this kind of lifestyle and used this very thing brings that thing into the presence of Jesus and breaks it over his feet. Wow. Because when you see that, what you realize, and he wasn't repulsed by it, he didn't become indignant and say, don't touch me and what are you doing? I know what that's used for. No. Jesus sits still and lets her break the brokenness of her life over the wholeness of his feet. And to me, that's what happens in worship. Worship is where I bring in all the mess and I bring in the brokenness. I bring in the shame and I bring in the pain and I bring in the sin and I bring in all my stuff. And I say, God, this is who I am. I am messed up. I don't, have, I don't have anything to offer you other than myself. I don't have anything to offer you other than my life. And it's a broken life. But worship is where we bring ourselves into the presence of God. And we break ourselves. We give our brokenness. We break our brokenness, if you will, over the feet of Jesus. And he receives that as a fragrance. That's why he's saying, I'm not asking for, for gold. And I'm not asking for silver. And I'm not asking that you do this or you have this. No, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I just want you messed up, jacked up, screwed up, broken, pain-filled, if you will, shameful. I just want you. And in worship, our, our sin becomes forgiveness and our shame becomes glory and our pain is healed because it's a metamorphic moment with Jesus. It's an opportunity to encounter the living God. And we come in and we lay ourselves down and we come in and we choose to love and we choose to express it. And when we choose to love and we choose to express it, we humble ourselves and we lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Jesus says, that's all I ever wanted. I just wanted you. And I'll take everything about you and I'll make it okay and I'll make it right. To me, guys, that's an opportunity every time I worship. Just to encounter Jesus, the grace of Jesus, to lay ourselves down and to see what he will do with us. I just, I just want us to get that picture. That worship is love expressed. Laying down pride and then bringing ourselves and letting God transform us 
in a moment by his grace. It's a metamorphic moment. Amen. Can you give Jesus praise one more time? God is so good. (laughs) Will you stand? I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. And so we always end every worship experience with a time of prayer for anyone who needs prayer for anything. We just want to pray with you. So today, if you need a relationship with Jesus, like if you, if you know you need a I'm not asking about religion, but a relationship with Jesus, you need to be forgiven. You need to be cleansed or washed. We want to pray with you. If you need healing, if you have a situation, you struggle, anxiety, depression, whatever it is, we just want to love you and pray for you. That's all we want to do. If you're online, if you'll text my pathway prayer to 94,000, we'll connect with you that way. We'll pray with you that way. But it's our honor to pray with you. But will you bow your heads with me? I just want to pray over us as we end our time together. And just, God, we just thank you so much for your presence. And God, you, you created, you designed us to be worshipers because it's the best. Because in worship, God, we become like you. In worship, God, our pain is gone, our shame is gone, our sin is gone. In worship, God, we are transformed. We are forgiven, we are freed. God, thank you for worship. God, I just pray you'd give us the heart of worshipers. God, like your word says, circumcise our hearts so we can love you more. Lord, circumcise our hearts so we can love you more, be more sensitive to you, love you with all of our heart, soul, and live for you, God. Lord, we want to be worshipers. We want to be in your presence. We want to be transformed by you, God. Lord, I pray right now that you would speak to every person in this room. If if you would take a moment and ask God what he is saying to you, if you would, even if you're online. Just say, God, what are you saying to me? And God, I pray right now you'd speak to every person, God, in this room. Lord, speak to them words of life. Lord, the word you need them to hear, you want them to hear. And God, I just pray we we would all receive the word you speak. And God, let it change us. God, we thank you so much again. You are so good. We thank you for all you've done and doing that we see and we don't see. God, we just thank you that you are God and there is none like you. God, I pray today anyone who needs a relationship with you would be drawn. They would come and receive you. And God, anybody that needs prayer, Lord, draw them and meet them and encounter them and let them be changed. Lord, as we go out this week into Compassion Week, anoint our church, anoint our serve teams, anoint our outreach teams. And God, help us to go out and reach people and win people, God, to to sow seeds and also, God, to reap harvests. God, the harvest of souls. Lord, I just pray, God, you would move in power in every outreach. Keep them safe, but move powerfully, Lord. God, I just thank you again that you're good. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. Yeah, come on, give Jesus one more praise. So good. <clears throat> Listen, if you need prayer, you need relationship with Jesus, whatever it is, if you need prayer, we want you to come. We want to pray with you. Everyone else, I love you. I big God bless you. We'll see you this week as we serve or as we pray, or we'll see you this weekend. God bless you. We love you.